passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. welcome you if you're new. Uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here and thankful you can join us. And we had a good time singing about Jesus and now we're getting a chance to study Jesus in God's word. And if you're new, you came at just the right time because today we begin a completely new series. We're going to be studying the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. So I'd like to ask you to get out your copy of the Bible, uh, turn to 1 Samuel. If you're using a pew Bible, most likely it's found around page 225, though not all the pew Bibles are the same, so it should be close to page 225. And while you're turning to 1 Samuel, let me just take a few minutes to talk about the topic of leadership. Leadership is an incredibly important topic especially today. And as you know, there's a lot of cynicism towards those who are leaders over us, especially by the media. And those who are in positions of power, people like to undermine them, people like to laugh at them, and we can mock leaders all we want. But the reality is when leaders make decisions, especially ones on the government level, it influences our lives. It changes our lives changes the direction of our future. I mean, imagine if you were in California right now. The governor, he's the leader, and his decisions influence your life, like it or not. Also, what we decide is important to us is oftentimes based on the leaders we admire, the leaders we look up to. We tend to like the same thing they do. The leaders we don't like, those are the things we typically disdain. Now, leadership is not just something about people that are over us, but whether you realize it or not, each one of us are leaders in our own regard. If you're at work, chances are you are in a position of leadership over somebody, and your leadership influences them. Even if you're just a stay-at-home mom, you're a leader over your children, and the leadership you have there influences your children. So this topic of leadership is incredibly important because the quality of a leader influences people's lives. And that brings us back to the book of 1 Samuel that we're starting today. The book of 1 Samuel is a book about leadership. It is. Now, it's a different kind of book about leadership. If you went to Amazon and typed leadership, you would not see 1 Samuel come up. It would be totally different on Amazon. But 1 Samuel is a book about leadership nonetheless. In fact, if you have your outlines out, let me just give you a little bit of background uh, on this book, and you'll see why it's about leadership. We see the background here begins with this. Israel was in the midst of a leadership crisis when the book of 1 Samuel begins. And First and Second Samuel, by the way, there's two books in our Bible. Originally, they were one book. They were divided just simply because of the length of the books, but they belong together. And First and Second Samuel tell us a story of three great leaders in the nation of Israel. Leaders that God raised up when they were experiencing a massive leadership crisis in the nation. 
The first leader that we're going to be introduced to today begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's Samuel. Now, the second leader we'll see in these books is King Saul. King Saul will be introduced around 1 Samuel chapter 9, and he will actually die by the end of 1 Samuel, but we'll look at him from 1 Samuel 9 to the end of the book. Now, David, he's the greatest king in Israel. He's the next leader that gets introduced. He's introduced to us in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but he won't actually take on a full leadership position until we get to the book of 2 Samuel. So these books, 1 and 2 Samuel, which are really one book, are the story of three great leaders when the nation of Israel is experiencing a massive leadership crisis. Samuel, Saul, and David. Now let me briefly set more of the scene. 1 Samuel is a book that was written 3,000 years ago. The year is 1050 B.C. And the question of leadership is really what's in the air for this young nation of Israel. <coughs> they have been living really in a state of complete anarchy, chaos and upheaval for about two to three hundred years. After Joshua brought them into the promised land, uh, they didn't have any official, what do you call, recognized government structure other than the fact that they were known as a theocracy. They were a nation run by God. And what would happen is a consistent cycle. Instead of following God, they would eventually drift away from God. They'd start following the people around them and the nations around them. And then God would let uh, somebody oppress them. Then they would cry out to God, ask for your rescue and deliverance. God would raise up what's called a judge. A judge would deliver them. They'd repent and they wouldn't stick real long. Once again, they'd wander away and God raised up another oppressor. And then God would, they'd call out and God would raise up another judge and he would rescue them. And this is a constant cycle that goes on throughout the book of Judges. Rebelling, repenting, Savior, Judge. But how long is that going to go on for? Book, the book of Judges, which describes this two to three hundred years before the book of 1 Samuel, which is after they've come into the promised land, no official government structure, theocracy, God's in charge, and they keep drifting away. It's described this way at the end of book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Maybe a way to think about it a little bit today would be like Somalia, you know, where they have no government out there, and it's sort of warlords and survival of the fittest. Israel is in desperate need of leadership at this point. But the question really is, what kind of leadership did they need? Israel is different than other nations. You know, Israel is God's nation. It's God's people. Genesis chapter 12, God promised he would make them a great nation. God promised he would bless the world through them. So this question of leadership really has a particular spin on it. It's not just what kind of leader does a nation need, but what kind of leader do God's people need? That's really what this book is trying to answer. And 1 Samuel is not just about God's answer to the problem of leadership in the year 1050 B.C., 
But as we're going to see, it's God's answer to the crisis of leadership in our lives today. What kind of leader do we need today? But more on that later. Let's not get ahead of ourselves at this point. What I'd like to do is hopefully you found the book of 1 Samuel. I'd like to read the first 20 verses together, which is what we're going to be studying this morning. And in these 20 verses, the story begins by introducing us to an ordinary family in a small town and the role that they will play in addressing a nation in crisis. So go ahead and stand out of reverence for God's word. Follow along in your copy of God's word as I read the first 20 verses. There was a certain man in Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Now he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, <coughs> O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but you will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all long I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. 
and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made of him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house, and Eli knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. That ends the reading of God's word. You can be seated. (coughs) Thank you, Andy, or thank you, Kevin. Let's go ahead and work our way through these verses. First thing we see is this. God's answer to the anarchy of life at that time came from a really unexpected place. First thing we'll see here is Elkanah's city and ancestors, and they're just insignificant. It says this in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Now, the book of 1 Samuel opens up the way many Old Testament books do. It introduces us to a list of people who mean absolutely nothing to us. Isn't that true? So what can we learn about these list of people who have no reference to us whatsoever? Well, a couple things. First of all, Achana, he comes from, from Ramathim Zophim. That's like a mouthful. You'll see that shortened, by the way, later in the scriptures, just to simply Rama. That's the way to put it. And he comes from what is an insignificant town, at least in this time in the biblical story. It'll become more significant later. His family connections, by the way, are all unimportant. Elkanah's family, the reason we don't recognize any of these people is because they're absolutely nobodies in Israel. And here's the one thing that's notable maybe in here. Elkanah and his great-great-grandfather are Ephrathites. That's another name for Bethlehem. King David will be born in Bethlehem an answer to the leadership crisis of the people. Jesus will be later born in Bethlehem, answer to the ultimate leadership crisis in the world. But let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. Here, for now, what we see is a little lesson for us. Elkanah, his family, his town, were all nobodies. And this is a theme that is going to be developed in the book of 1 Samuel. God's solution to the leadership crisis doesn't come from expected places. It doesn't come from really important and powerful people. It comes from an unexpected place, and it comes from ordinary people. Isn't that true where the ultimate solution to the leadership crisis in every one of our lives came from? an unexpected town called Bethlehem from an unexpected family? Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but you're beginning to see where some of this goes. 
while we see that Elkanah's city and ancestors were insignificant, the next thing we see in the next verse is that Elkanah's family life was a complete and total mess. We read this. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peniah. And Hannah had children, or excuse me, Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So after meeting Elkanah, we're introduced to his hurting home. Now apparently this is the way things had gone down. Hannah was his first wife, and they suffered from a common problem, which is she could not conceive. So to solve that problem, they ended up with a second wife, Peniah, to provide children in the family. And this brings us to a wonderful Old Testament topic, the topic of polygamy, because we often see polygamy in the Old Testament. Just so you know, by the way, polygamy is not the norm for all men in the Old Testament. Sorry, guys. It's just not normative. Genesis 2.24 tells us that God created one man and one woman. That is God's plan. You go to the New Testament, Matthew 19, verse 5. Jesus says it's to be one man and one woman. That is God's plan. But times in the Old Testament, we see that men have multiple wives. Just so you know, that is not recommended by God. That is not endorsed by God. And this is very important for you guys who might think that would be a good idea. Every single time we see polygamy in the Old Testament, the family is filled with conflict. The home is a complete mess. Every single time. So you can see polygamy is clearly not the way God wants it to happen because it does not lead to a happy home life. So... Elkanah deeply loved Hannah. Hannah could not bear any children. <coughs> so he married Peniah. Peniah gave him many children. But here's the problem. Peniah was not at the center of Elkanah's heart. So can you picture what it is like in this home? The woman who is deeply loved by Elkanah cannot produce a child, but the woman who isn't really loved by Alcana at all produces lots of children but desperately wants to be the center of his heart. You see how this is a recipe for disaster? Complete and total disaster. Now, when we hear about a woman in the Old Testament who is not able to bear a child, if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that usually means God is up to something isn't he? Hasn't he done this before? Abraham was not able to bear a child with Sarah, so they decided they'd bring another woman into the situation named Hagar, which resulted in, by the way, a really unhappy disaster home, yet God kept his promise, and Sarah conceived Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. They had problem conceiving. God prayed, or excuse me, Isaac repaid prayed for Rebekah, and she conceived Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob, he was sort of tricked into two wives. Remember that? Rachel and Leah, which once again, guys, was that a happy home? 
Absolutely not. It was a disastrous home once again. Now, Rachel had trouble conceiving, but God was up to something. She eventually conceived Joseph, who would be the one to save Egypt and to save God's people in the time of the famine. So when God, so when you see a woman who can't conceive in the Old Testament, it usually means God is up to something and up to something special. And that's what we know about Hannah at this point. God is up to something special. But if you're a woman who desperately wants to conceive and have a child for your husband and a rival wife is doing that for you, even though you know God is up to something special, it doesn't make you feel any better, does it? Absolutely not. By the way, here's our little answer, and I want to put this into you right now. A little application. God's answer to the leadership crisis in Israel is going to come from the most unexpected place and the most unexpected family, as we're starting to see in the first two verses. In a similar way, God's answer to the anarchy in our lives comes from a leader nobody expected. His name is what? Come on, guys. Jesus. And by the way, both of them are going to come from a place called Bethlehem. So we move from God's answer to a leadership crisis, comes from an unexpected place. We start to look at Hannah, and here the topic becomes this. (coughs) God hasn't forgotten us, but he cares about us. Let's start to look at this. Elkanah was a faithful, godly man, is what we see. Verses 3 through 5. Now this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Alcana sacrificed, he would give portions to Benaiah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. There's a lot of them. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. (coughs) So, what he would do is he would go up to Shiloh to worship from the area of Ramah. By the way, Shiloh was only 15 miles north from where Elkanah lived. Um, that place, Shiloh, has been for the last two to 300 years where the tabernacle has been located. When Joshua came into the promised land, that's where they, and they came out of Canaan, that's where they set up their tabernacle, and that's been the place of worship for God's people. At this time, Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas served as priests. Just so you know, Hophni and Phinehas are a parent's absolute worst nightmare. We will get to those guys in the upcoming weeks. Every year, Elkanah went up to worship and to offer sacrifices. So the general impression we have of Elkanah is a man that he took God seriously, He was faithful to God, and he worshiped God in the way that was appropriate for his day. He's a good guy. Now, Elkanah wasn't just faithful in his worship of God, but he was also faithful to his wives and his totally messed up home. While Paniah, we see, was not his favorite wife, he when they offered the fellowship offering there, which was actually a meal, after you offered that offering, you ate that meal in the temple or at the tabernacle, 
he gave portions to Paniah. He gave her part of the food, and he gave adequate portions to all of her children. To Hannah, which is the wife he loved, because he loved her so much, even though she didn't have any children to feed, he gave her a double portion because he loved her so much. Now, Elkanah did not understand while Hannah had not conceived. But here's what I want you to notice. He still worshiped God, even though God had closed her womb. He wasn't angry at Hannah. He still loved Hannah. He was a faithful and loving husband to Hannah. Elkanah knew that God was sovereign, that God had closed her womb, but he also knew that when God allows hard circumstances into our life, he has a good reason for it. Isn't that true? Not just for Hannah, and not just for Elkanah, but that's also true for us, isn't it? He still loves us. He still cares about us, even though there are hard circumstances we face. Now, the next thing we see <coughs> is Paniah. Paniah, Hannah's rival wife, loved to taunt her. It says this in verses 6 and 7. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So from Elkanah, who is the good husband, even though Hannah had a closed womb because God had closed it, we go to Paniah, who is the wicked rival wife. When she knew that God had closed Hannah's womb, she used that to torture her and to provoke her. Imagine with me for a moment what the conversations between these two women might have been like. Could you see Paniah turning to Hannah? So why are you worshiping the Lord? What do you have to be even thankful for? You don't even have a child. He doesn't listen to you. He doesn't care about you. And maybe Paniah would turn to one of her children, son, poor Miss Hannah can't conceive a child, so mommy has to do that for Elkanah for her. Oh, Hannah, did I tell you? Oh, by the way, I'm pregnant again. I'm just providing another child for Elkanah. Apparently God must love me. He doesn't love you. Could you imagine the hostility that existed between these two women? Do you see why Hannah is completely heartbroken? Do you see why she's not even able to eat? By the way, guys, I told you a second wife doesn't make for a happy home. What an example, right? Now, Elkanah, in response to this, he tried to comfort Hannah, his wife. It says, in Elkanah, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, by the way, I think Elkanah meant well. Uh, ladies, do you think that actually helped? No, absolutely not. She wants a child. 
And here's what we find. In her brokenness, Hannah ran to God, not from him. <coughs> After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. <coughs> So after they had this fellowship offering, which was really a celebratory meal, Peniah's had lots of food given to her and her many children. Hannah has had her double portion because Elkanah wants her to feel good, even though she feels bad. She gets up and goes in a crying way to the temple. Now, by the way, we, here we go with Eli again. Eli is the priest, the spiritual leader of God's people. Incidentally, we find him here sitting beside the doorpost of the temple. We're going to learn a lot about Eli in the upcoming weeks, but I want you to know he is what's called a very passive man. Every single time he's pictured in 1 Samuel, he is seated doing absolutely nothing, which is apparently the normal condition of his life. He is what you call a human paperweight. That's about all he does in life. Hannah is deeply distressed. She's praying to God and weeping. It's very clear to Hannah at this point what the narrator has told us so far twice, that it is God who has closed her womb. And she knows that if her womb is ever going to become open again, she has to go to God for help. God is the one who is sovereign over all things. We talked about this. God causes, allows troubles in our life for a good reason. And when troubles come into our life, we have options. We can become angry at God. We can become mad at God. Or when we face those troubles, we can run to God asking for his help and asking for his mercy. And that's what Hannah does. By the way, isn't it true that sometimes God allows the troubles in our life because he's planning to do something in us? He's planning to use those troubles to change us, to mature us, to grow us, and to shape us to be more like Jesus. Oftentimes he uses those troubles, troubles to humble us. And as we're going to see, that's part of why these troubles have come into Hannah's life. To put her in a position where when she asks for a son, she wants a son, but she's willing to give him wholly to the Lord, not keep him for herself. Which is going to be the key that is going to unleash all that goes forward here. Now, isn't this also true for us? That God sometimes allows us to go through hard times, to change our hearts, to humble us, and to get us to call out to God in ways that we desperately need. Look what Paul says about this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the hard things, even the difficult things. <coughs> Let's follow along and see how this works together. 
If God answered her prayer, Hannah promised to dedicate her son to God for life. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. If you will just look on my affliction and give me a son, I'll give him to you. Now here is where it's interesting. This word affliction. In the Hebrew, it's the same language used to describe what was happening to God's people in the land of Egypt. Remember that? Bricks made without straw, throwing their male sons in the Nile, and God would look on the affliction of his people. God sent a son who would be their deliverer. His name was Moses. Hannah is actually praying, God, would you do that again? Would you look on the affliction that I am experiencing? Would you repeat history and send a son that I will dedicate to you? Now, I don't think Hannah probably realizes all she's asking. Because it's not just Hannah that is in affliction, that desperately wants a son and needs God to deliver her. But isn't it the nation of Israel that is also in affliction at this point, that has been lost for 200 years, that is desperately in need of a leader? And God is not going to just answer Hannah's prayer for a son, but he is going to care for his people as well. Now, this son, she says, I will dedicate him to the Lord and no razor shall touch his head. This incidentally is what's called a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vows are usually temporary. It's a time to set yourself apart for the Lord. You wouldn't cut your hair during that time. You wouldn't drink alcohol. You wouldn't touch a dead body. But here, she says, I will dedicate my son to the Lord in a Nazarite vow for life. By the way, there's one other famous Nazarite. You know who that was? In the book of Judges, do you remember? Samson. Yeah, now he broke his Nazarite vow. It did not go well. Samuel, who we'll see in a moment, does not break his Nazarite vow. <coughs> now Hannah poured out her troubles to God in prayer. As she continued praying before the Lord, before the Lord Eli observed her mouth. Now Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away. By the way, I told you there's a great leadership crisis in Israel. Eli is the spiritual leader. He cannot tell the difference between a desperate praying woman and a drunk woman. I told you there's a big crisis here. This guy is like a human paperweight. He does nothing. Hannah responds. But Hannah answered, but no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now it's interesting here, by the way. Hannah says, don't regard me as a worthless woman. 
this word worthless, it's going to be used later on to describe Eli's own sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are worthless men. What we see here is being hinted at. The people who are running the very tabernacle are worthless men. Hannah, who is an ordinary woman, a nobody from Ramah, knows God better than they do. I think it's also worth noting, and I put in my Bible years ago, that, by the way, you notice Hannah when she prays here? She prays in her heart, but God is listening. Did you know that? That when you pray in your heart, God is listening. You don't have to always say things out loud or verbally when you pray. In fact, this idea of praying in the heart, it happens a number of times throughout the book of 1 Samuel. God listens. Well, then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Well, unknown to Eli, he's just endorsed her prayer, but he's not just endorsed a prayer that God would rescue Hannah and give her a son, but he's endorsed a prayer that will lead to his own demise. Because the son that God will give Hannah, who is Samuel, will be the one who is going to replace Eli and his sons in in spiritual leadership over Israel. Now, Hannah believed she could leave her worries with God because God cared about her. (coughs) And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And here I'd like to point out to you that Hannah's prayer changed things. It started by changing her. She ate, she drank, she went away, and she was no longer sad. She brought her pain and her brokenness before God, and she left it at God's feet. God had closed her womb. God would have to be the one to open her womb. Just as God had rescued his people from their afflictions in the land of Egypt, God would have to be the one to rescue her. And God gave her what I would call a peace that passes understanding because she realized God knows, God cares about her, and God will respond to her prayers. Folks, that isn't just true of Hannah. But that's true for us as well today. God knows about you. God loves you. And God cares about you. You're his people too. And when we come to him in prayer, we leave our worries, we leave our pain at his feet, knowing that he cares about us. And he will respond to those prayers. Look what the Bible says in the New Testament. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares about you. Folks, what anxiety are you facing today? What leaves you broken 
just like Hannah? Are you someone who maybe you can't conceive a child? Only God can answer that prayer. Are you someone who can't find a spouse? Only God can answer that. Are you someone stuck in a dead-end job you don't like? Stuck in a tough marriage? Are you stuck with children that are rebelling? God is sovereign. Pray, leave it at God's feet. Know and believe the honest truth that he does care for you and he will respond to your prayers. Don't carry that anxiety. Leave it with him. Paul writes about this in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And notice this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now we find it comes full circle. God answers Hannah's prayer with the birth of Samuel. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. (coughs) For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. By the way, when it says the Lord remembered, that doesn't mean that God had forgotten about Hannah. Usually in the scriptures, when it says the Lord remembered, that means God stepped into action. Like the Lord remembered Noah in the days of the flood and saved him. Or the Lord remembered Rachel and she conceived Joseph. Here the Lord remembered Hannah and she conceived Samuel. The child is the answer to her pain. And the child is also Samuel, the answer to the leadership crisis in the nation that people need. Now next week, we're going to look at Samuel's early years. But let's look at some applications from what we studied. (coughs) Here's a few. Well, we can learn from the example of Elkanah, who was a faithful and godly husband. You can say, well, I can learn from that example. He loved God, and he loved his wife, even though he was in a very difficult home. Hey, that's admirable. We can learn from that. That's an example to follow. Also, we can learn from the example of Hannah, who cast all of her anxieties on God and was confident that God cared for her. For Hannah, prayer was not meaningless. Prayer was genuine, and she left her pain at God's feet, confident that God loved her and that God would answer her prayer in what is the right time and the right way. God had closed her womb, and God loved her and would open her womb. But the purpose of this book, the purpose of this chapter, is not really about be like Elkanah or be like Hannah. The book of 1 Samuel is not about those people. It's really about God, isn't it? And this is what I wanted to put down for you here. I wrote these out because I wanted to be clear. The main message of the chapter is not just that God cared for Hannah, but that God cares about us. God didn't just rescue Hannah and Israel from their painful troubles on that day by the birth of Samuel, 
But God rescued us from a much greater trouble, the trouble of our sin, by the birth of Jesus. Just as Samuel will be born at Bethlehem, Jesus will be born at Bethlehem. And this one. While Samuel was the leader born in Bethlehem that God sent to rescue his people who are wandering from God, Jesus is the leader born in Bethlehem that God sent to rescue us from the problem of sin when we were wandering from God. Rescue us once and for all. By the way, the book of 1 Samuel is a book about leadership. Jesus is the king that our heart needs. Jesus is the leader that we need in our life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even though we just sort of opened up the very beginning of this book, just were introduced to Hannah and her crisis, and you caring for her and giving her Samuel, the son would deliver her from her afflictions. I ask that you would help us to remember that you care about us and you respond and answer our prayers in a way that is good, in a way that is right, and according to your timing and your ways. And I thank you that while you sent a, a deliverer to rescue Hannah from her pain and rescue your people in 1050 BC from the leadership crisis they desperately faced, thank you that you care about us and you sent us the ultimate leader that we need to follow, the one who has died for us and to save our life, Jesus, your own son. We ask this in Christ's precious name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.